We're in a section of Galatians where Paul is emphasizing that we are saved by faith and not through the works of the law. He's doing this because it's become a point of contention or disagreement in the church at Galatia. And so his goal here is for us to understand the significance, the importance, the value, the truth, even the meaning of faith. And so we're just going to look at a couple of verses this morning, just six, seven, eight, and nine, um, four verses this morning, uh, and, and let's just hear uh, what God has for us this morning, beginning in Galatians 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that, that, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the example of Abraham this morning, as he fits into the argument that the Apostle Paul is making to the church he planted, I pray as well, God, that you would help us to see where we fit in to your great plan of salvation that we would see ourselves in the lineage, in the lineup of Abraham, that we would seek to follow in his footsteps and to be like he was a man or a woman of faith. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to enjoy and experience the blessings that are held for us in this text, Lord, that are accessible to us by putting our trust in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that verse 6 picks up mid-sentence, just as Abraham believed God. What Paul's been doing just before this is he's been reminding the congregation in Galatia what it was like for them to become Christians. The majority of the people he's talking to were not Jewish in background, but Gentiles. They were uh, Greek-speaking, under the empire of Rome, living in the region of Galatia, pagans, worshiping the gods uh, that were available to them. And then when they heard about Jesus Christ, they responded not with circumcision, not with taking on the law of Moses, but they responded believing the testimony that was given about Jesus, faith. They took the truth that was presented in Jesus Christ and they believed it. And as Paul pointed out, there was an experiential component to that. Listen to what he says here in Uh, in verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And so he presents the experience here of the Galatian church, and he says, don't you remember what it was like in the beginning? Don't you remember that you experienced the Spirit of God, that you saw miracles performed? 
And he said, was that because you kept in line with the rules? Is that because you were doing the right things? Or is it because you took the things that God said about Jesus Christ seriously and put your trust in them? And that led to these things. But when he says in verse 6, just as Abraham, he reaches way back thousands of years before the Galatians' own experiences to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. Okay? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he quotes here from Genesis chapter 15. You see, here's the thing. Those who were coming into the Galatians church and leading them towards these things were trying to maintain continuity with what God had always done. Yes, you're Gentiles. Yes, the Messiah has come, but he's a Jewish Messiah, and this means that you need to become Jews to enjoy the Messiah. You need to enter into the covenant that God gave with Israel. You need to become circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Follow the traditions. And so Paul does something very clever here. He says, if we're going to talk about traditions, let's go back to the beginning. Let's start at the start. In fact, can't you imagine... Can't you imagine that for the Jewish leaders who were speaking to the Galatian church that Abraham would be exhibit A for their side? Abraham, who worshipped gods and was not a Jew, but just a pagan, just someone out in the land of Ur doing his own thing when God called him and gave him the promises. Not only that, but it's Abraham that God gave the right of circumcision. Okay, And so you can imagine Paul's Uh, opponents, his opposition saying, you need to do what Abraham did. Leave behind your culture. Leave behind the world you came from. Come and receive the law. And Paul says, I agree entirely. They should be like Abraham. But how was it that Abraham came into a relationship with God? What was the basis of the blessings that, uh, that Abraham experienced? How did he come to be known as righteous? And he says, read the text. What does it say in Genesis? It says, after God lays out the promises, he says, Abraham, look at the sky. See all those stars? Just as many, so awful, so also will your offspring be. And then it says in Genesis 15, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. What was it that made Abraham acceptable before God? What was it that gave Abraham access into everything that God had for him? Was it that he kept the rules or that he walked in the right way? No, when, when God calls to Abraham, he calls out of the blue. He doesn't go, Abraham, I've been watching you. You are faithful in all my ways. He says, Abraham, let me reveal myself to you. Let me make promises to you. Come out, and I will show you a better way. And where do we see Abraham's faith? He says, God has told me to leave, so I'm leaving. In fact, the problem here is, how does one become part of the family, right? How does one become part of the people that God is putting together? How does one become blessed? Okay. Now, That word, I think, has lost most of its meaning. 
uh, in our modern world. And so we need to read it as a biblical term, and we need to recognize that in the beginning of Genesis, blessing is part of God's design for humanity. It's part of what goes into creating man and woman. He speaks to them, and he blesses them in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? God's plan, God's purpose for humanity involves this idea of blessing. Okay? But what happens just a few chapters later? Because of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion in the garden, they find not a blessing, but a curse. Adam, cursed be the ground for your sake. Okay? So that is the state of the world, not as God designed it, but that doesn't really answer the question, what is a blessing? Okay. Ultimately, when you look at the whole thing, here's what the blessing is. The blessing of Scripture, the one that begins in Genesis, the one that Paul is evoking here, is to be in relationship with the God who made you. And to be, if you will, on his team, pursuing the flourishing of the world as he designed it. To be, as it says in Genesis 1, his image bearer, called to represent him to cultivate the world in a way that reflects his character and his glory, to bring about his goodness. But the curse sets all of that aside. It moves everything in the wrong direction. And so instead of be fruitful and multiply, we have sweat and toil and death. And if you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they're all tremendously universal. Adam and Eve we have in common. The flood is a worldwide problem. The Tower of Babel leads to all of the languages, right? They're all big, expansive, worldwide things. And then in Genesis chapter 12, suddenly God focuses on a single man and his barren wife, right? The field of vision narrows. Whereas the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover thousands of years, the next 11 chapters cover a little bit more than 100 years, okay? The pace slows way down. But what does he say to Abraham. It's not something new. It's not something different. It's a return to the beginning. He says, come to a land which I will show you in Genesis 12, and I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing, and ultimately through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God calls Abraham into that blessed status, into relationship with him, into a restored place as playing on God's team and seeking God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's where it all begins. Okay. And so the question is, how do we get into that family? How do we experience that blessing? How do we restore our relationship with the God who made us? How do we fulfill our purpose as human beings? I know these are huge questions. They're the questions. And they're all bound up in this passage. But notice what he says here in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons, the children, the descendants of Abraham. Now, there were two wrong ways to think about this that were very common. You may remember on an occasion, Jesus is talking with some of the religious leaders of his day, and they make this very simple claim. 
why are you criticizing us? We are the children of Abraham, right? We are direct body and flesh descendants of Abraham. His DNA runs through us. We are Jews. We are Israelites. Abraham is our physical great, 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 and so on grandfather, right? Or another way to think about is we follow Abraham by doing what he did, by taking on the mark of circumcision and entering into the covenant that God has given. But Paul here says, no, 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 no. The way you become part of Abraham's family has always involved faith. Not blood, but belief. Not circumcision, but stepping into and believing and trusting in the promises. Let me remind you that Abraham's first descendant only came about through faith. Right? Abraham's son, Isaac. God had chosen Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and said, I'm going to make you many descendants. And Abraham goes, well, there's a problem with that. You see, I'm very old, and my wife's been barren our entire marriage. So, and he says, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to do the miraculous. In fact, in Romans 4, it says it this way. Abraham did not consider the deadness of his own body, but instead believed the word of the Lord. Faith. There is no Isaac without trusting God's promises. Faith is at the very beginning. Faith is an essential component. Okay? So those who are faith are the sons of Abraham. In fact, he'll go on in the next chapter and say, Abraham had more than one son, but not both sons were in the family business, if you will. There was Isaac, sure, but there was also Ishmael. And Ishmael was not the son of promise. There was Jacob, yes, but there was also Esau, and Esau was not the son of promise. What's the difference? In every place, one of the child's trusts in God. In every place, one of them is dialed into the family of faith. Okay. And you go, well, but what about circumcision? Again, the practice begins with Abraham. So how is it that Paul can say, look, if you're circumcised, you forsake the gospel, when that was the mark of what it meant to be one of Abraham's kids, just the external sign that you were one in the family. That has to do with chronology. That has to do with what he says here in verse 6 when he says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That happens in Genesis 15. Circumcision isn't instigated until years later in Genesis 17. And yet here, he's already accounted as righteous. Here, he's already seen by God as being righteous. He doesn't go, well... In a year and a half, I'm going to give you a test. And if you pass the test, then you'll be righteous in my eyes. Right here, he's already seen. Right here, he's already acceptable before God. Why? Because he trusted in the promise. So faith, faith is the real mark of the family of God. Now this is essential to understand. Because the difference between faith and works. Or, I I don't like works because that makes us think of, you know, soup kitchens and things like that. It's broader than this. Let's say faith versus things we do, okay? 
I'll give you some illustrations to help unpack that and, and broaden it out from charity. Okay. Either God sees you as righteous, either you bring about the kingdom, either you find the blessing in life, either you fulfill your purpose through your ideas, your plans, and your execution, or faith, you take the things that God has said, is saying, will say. Take the things that God said he has done, is doing, and will do. Either you put your trust in the things that God is going to do, or the things that you are. That's the divide here. Either Abraham goes, all right, God, I'm going to come before you, and you should accept me because I've done A, B, C, D. But you know where that leads? It leads to a little baby named Ishmael. That's the problem. God gives a promise. He says, I'm going to give you a son. And Sarah says, I think what God means is we should give him a son. Right? That's not the way of faith. This difference is important because in one, God is God. In the other, he's just a means to an end. We just get him, you know, to approve us to get him off our back. Or we just get him to agree with us so he'll give us what we want. In one of them, God is the main character of the story. God says, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is where we're going. The other, we're the main character, and we say, here is how I've lived. This is where I'm going. Aren't you impressed? Okay? This is the divide between these two things. And so the life of faith takes God at his word, builds our life around that. Now, obviously, that leads to obedience. Martin Luther's most important book is his commentary on Galatians. That's where he argues that it is faith alone that saves us. But he goes on to say that saving faith is never alone. Okay? That like James says, faith becomes manifest in our life. Because if we trust God's promises, we'll also trust his warnings. If we trust his character, then we'll believe the things that he's calling us to do are the right things, good things, healthy things, loving things. Okay. Again, go back to the garden. We don't generally think about the sin of eating the fruit as being the sin of unbelief, but that's exactly what it was. Is this tree good for you or bad for you? Is this leading to life or to death? That's why the serpent opens his conversation this way. Did God really say? Right? It's a question of words. It's a question of truth. It's a question of reality. And so faith includes and leads to doing the things that God would have us do. But to start there is to put the cart before the horse. Because you can do everything God asks you to do without any form of trust or belief. In fact, I think you can probably imagine somebody who says, well, I don't know if God really exists, but just in case, I'm going to avoid the big sins so that, right? I'm just going to tick all the boxes to make sure. But if the blessing we're talking about is not just, you know, some sort of material or even eternally material blessing, just achieve God's, you know, like being on the dean's list. You just get on God's list and it's smooth sailing from there. But if it's actually about being in communion with 
relationship with, enjoying the love of God. Again, it's just two totally different paths. Know then this, that those of faith, these are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Look at verse 8. This is important as well. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now notice what he's saying here. Okay? He says, first, that the way that God brings about his work and will in our life is through his promises, which connect us with his working and his character. Okay? Second, that this being universal, if you will, not just for the genealogical children of Abraham, but for all who would follow suit in the same way in faith, he says that was always the plan. You see, I, I think one of the ways, especially if you grew up in church, we read the Old Testament, is like plan A. All right, here's plan A. I'm going to work in the people of Israel. I'm going to give them the law. Oh, no, they can't keep the law. I better come up with a plan B, so he sends Jesus. But do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying the scripture pre-proclaimed the gospel beforehand. At the very beginning, the first step God takes in redeeming humanity is universal in its intent. He doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to save you and your descendants. At least I can save a few human beings. He says, I'm going to do a work in you that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay. And notice he doesn't say that through you, all the nations will become the nation of Israel. It's an outward push, not an inward draw. Okay. Here's the point. God's family is intentionally recruiting. And it's been so since the beginning. God's desire to bless mankind is nothing less than to bless all of mankind. God's desire is that all would know him, walk with him, experience his love, and love him in return. And so all the way back in Genesis 12... Scripture has this universal intent in mind. In fact, all the way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, have just mucked everything up with their sin, right there in the midst of consequence and judgment, God says in Genesis 3.16, he says, I'm going to do something about this. And I'm going to do it through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and set everything right. But what doesn't he say? He doesn't say, you better figure out a way to do this. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring about this work. And when he calls Abraham, it's not Abraham who calls on God and says, God, I've got this great plan to save humanity. It's God who calls out of the blue to one man named Abraham and says, come, come to a land that I will show you. Come and I will bless you. Come and I will walk with you. And so God's plan here is consistent. In other words, Instead of thinking of plan A and plan B, think of it as phase one and phase two. Okay. It is appropriate to read your Bible with a parenthesis from Genesis 12 to Acts chapter 2, where God focuses on one nation, on preparing one people, on working towards one end of the birth of the Messiah. 
And he prepares this people for it. He instructs them. He gives them all of these images and expectations. He shows them that nothing else will lead or work apart from the Messiah coming. He builds up this hope, and then he supplies. Okay. And then think of Acts chapter 2. Here, 120 Jewish people who in their faith know who Jesus is, have trusted in him for salvation, who in their faith are waiting in Jerusalem because that's what Jesus told them to do. Stay in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they're waiting and they're praying and asking God to do what he said he would do. And he does it. And the Spirit descends. And what happens? They begin to speak in all of these other non-Jewish languages. And they go out into the crowded streets of a Jewish festival called Pentecost, where people of Jewish background have gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem. And these people hear the tongue of their own land, the language of Ethiopia and North Africa, the language of the Far East and the Far North in modern-day Turkey. They hear all these languages. What does it mean? It means that that closed parenthesis has come. It means that God has now done what he said he would do, and now it's time to announce it to the waiting world. Jesus Christ, the Savior of all, has come. That was always the plan. It was always God's intention. Notice what he says in verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Not the man of circumcision, not the man who keeps the law. Paul has an expanded version of this argument in the book of Romans, and he points this out. He says, how can Abraham be your primary example of a law keeper when the law doesn't show up for another 430 years? Right? The law comes later and serves a temporary purpose. But we're called not to be the children of Moses, but the children of Abraham. Think of how God identifies himself throughout the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is here not the man who kept the law. In fact, remember, he's not even the man who gave the law. It's a wild book by a guy named Salehammer. He argues that the first five books of the Bible have one and only one point, to show Moses, the law keeper, never enters into the promised land, and Abraham, who never knew the law, walks in it his whole life. Here's the point. The blessing of Abraham who walked with God. The blessing of Abraham who was barren and without child and was given, you know, a multitude of descendants. The blessing of the one who came to know and understand who God is. The blessing of the one who came as God's representative, working in the land of Canaan, representing the God who is there. How did it come? It came through faith. It came through trusting in God's promises and not his own works. It came through relying on the things that God said he would do, not the things that he had done to please God. It came through faith. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I know many of us this morning are Christians, And I know that many of us know that the front door of that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But every step that follows 
is a deeper step in the same direction. That's Paul's whole point to the Galatians. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? Having begun by God's enablement and empowerment, by a work of God changing you, do you now continue to change by doing your own work? Listen, when I was a kid, there was an organization that tried to stir up men to be better fathers and husbands, known as promise keepers. It's fine. It's good to sharpen iron, you know, to, to encourage and exhort one another to do the right thing. But biblically, it's promise believers that experience the blessing, that grow in righteousness, that experience change. When you're tempted, when you're dealing with a particular struggle and you're banging your head against the wall trying to overcome this thing, the only way you will overcome it is by trusting that Jesus will deliver you from this sin in the same way that he delivered you from sin yesterday. Faith is the way of blessing. If you want to experience what you were made for as a human being, God's purpose in creating mankind, it's going to come through believing what the Lord has said. It's going to come through trusting his word. It's going to come through expecting him to do the things that he promises to do. Jesus didn't say, repeat to yourself the mantra, I will build the kingdom. He said, pray, thy kingdom come. Do you hear the posture difference there? God has designed us as human beings not to be independent servants that figure out and do his will, but partners who receive not just the will, but the enablement to do so. This is why we use the word faith all the time. And like any word that we use all the time, it can lose its, its savor. It can lose its meaning. And pretty soon, faith just becomes an expression of optimism. Pretty soon, faith just becomes uh, an expression of religious rights or the freedom of religion or these things. Pretty soon, faith just becomes a junk drawer term that loses all meaning. But faith, biblically, always means in response to the word of God, acting as if it were true. And so sometimes that means God says, come out to a land that I will show you, and you pack your bags. And sometimes it's stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, and you do nothing. Okay? Faith is always shaped by the word that it responds to. But it is always built on the word. The word of God. Who he says he is. What he says he's doing. What he says he will do. What he says he's done. That is the foundation of faith. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What we've done this morning is proclaim the word of God. This is the truth. I want you to hear this truth, and I want you to believe it and receive it for yourself. Know then that those of faith, these are the sons of God. So then all those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. As the word of God, this is truth. It's truth that tells you who you are. Believe it. Stand on it. Act like it. Rest in it. Forsake the other things. 
And I want to just circle back to verse 1 again. Verse 6, just Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is another one of those terms. The meaning can be lost on us, so let me put it a different way. Abraham believed God and he was counted as worthy. Worthy to be in God's presence. Worthy of God's love. Worthy to keep on living, representing God. The author of Hebrews tells us this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But faith makes God easily pleasable. What is it that God wants of you today in that really hard situation at work? What is it he wants of you today in trying to set right something that went wrong early in your life that you haven't figured out? What is it that he wants you today when he calls you to love your neighbor or to preach the gospel to all nations? It's faith. He just wants you in a growing way to believe him, to trust him, to live, again, with expectation and with hope that he will do the things that he said. Take the leap and trust what doesn't make sense to your reason. You know, one of the things that we saw a few weeks ago in Galatians was that being the people of God, experiencing the Spirit of God, receiving the gospel, should make a difference. It should change your life. In fact, Paul will argue later in Galatians that it should even be somewhat visible, tangible, noticeable, by the world around you. And you see it in Abraham's life. As he goes around, it's not that he walks on water. It's not that he never sins. His life is kind of a mess in many occasions, but his faith is visible. The way that he goes about things is tangible. Let me give you another place where faith matters. First John says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just, to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're carrying guilt this morning, if you're feeling the weight and the shame, God is faithful and just if we confess our sins to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's not asking you to scrub the pot before you return it. He's not asking you to go out and do your penance or to get to a place where you emotionally really feel it. He's asking you in faith to believe that he's ready and willing to forgive. This is why faith matters. Faith takes God at his word. Faith makes God the hero of our lives. Faith leads us into cultivating a character that reflects the God who made us. Faith fulfills our purpose as human beings because our purpose was to live in fellowship with the God who made us and loved us. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'd like to read you another verse here from the same book here, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says about himself, he's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Where does righteousness come from? Where does the blessing of knowing God and working with him and representing him come from? It comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself being both the work and the word of God himself. Jesus himself who did do all things who pleased the Father, who lived a perfectly sinless and righteous life, who took all of your guilt and sin and all of the consequence upon his own shoulders, who experienced to the brim death, but drank it so deeply that he overcame it, resurrected, and offers life. The way back to God. It's not a way that you need to find. It's not even a way that you need to tread. It's Jesus who's the way, the truth, and the life. It's the God who took on flesh and came looking for you. It's a rescue mission. And it's one that right now, this same blessing that goes all the way back to Abraham is crying out from the scriptures this morning and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I pray for a recalibration in our hearts. That our orientation would be to hear your word and to believe it. I pray that we wouldn't make the mistake of trying to, to find faith. But that we would hear your word and we would just act as if it's true. I pray for any other area where we may be seeking to please you, whether it's to get what we want or to get you off our backs or just to not feel so bad. And I pray that we would just stop all of those things, that we would take the promises that you have made, the ones that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and that we would believe them. God, we just, we need you so much. And yet, you built life to be that way. You made us to be dependent upon you because you wanted to be in a loving relationship with us. I pray that every hindrance, any distance, any division between us and you, any obstacle would be overcome by faith that we would believe who you say you are, that we would believe what you said you did in Jesus Christ, that we would trust in the promises that you've made to us for today and tomorrow and forever, and that we would know you and walk with you just as Abraham, who believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.